Hey, I'm so glad you're joining me here on Rolanda On Demand. I'm Rolanda Watts, and my guest today, Judge Karen Friedman. Talk about somebody in the gritty, gritty crime area. We're going to talk with Judge Friedman, not only about crime and how crime has really gone up, particularly domestic crime uh, during this COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown, um, but also I wanted to talk with her about the Black Lives Matter movement, how that might be affecting the judicial system as well. Um, we're going to talk about that as well as how faith, herself being an Orthodox Jewish woman, how faith, how she uses her faith in her work. So we're going to have a good talk today. Before we get into Judge Karen Friedman, let me just take care of some, some, um, some home business here. Please be sure to follow the show, whether you're watching right now on my YouTube channel, the Rolanda Watch channel, or you're listening on your podcast, your favorite podcast network like iTunes or Spotify, RolandaOnDemand.com. You can get right to a listening podcast. Uh, please follow the show, subscribe, tell a friend, give a rating. Uh, please, let's, let's, let's get this show out there. Let's get this show out there. And also, please follow me every day of the week at Rolanda Watts, R-O-L-O-N-D-A, Rolanda Watts, on all forms of social media. And if you have some great ideas you'd like to share with me about some podcasts you think would be, you know, something right up your alley, email me, Rolanda at Rolanda.com. Now, let's get to our show, Rolanda On Demand. It's road time. Welcome to Rolanda On Demand. I love my podcast because we not only tackle the tough issues of the day, but we deal with hot topics, celebrity interviews, and information that can help you in your business or relationships. This is Rolanda On Demand. I think Karen Friedman, Judge Karen Friedman, is one of the most dynamite women I know that I know. And I know Baltimore is, is or Baltimore, Baltimore. <laughs> Baltimore. is blessed to have her uh, talent and her heart in, in uh, the judicial system. It's, Ooh, it's just, it's really, I mean, you know, and I was talking earlier about how you were this, you know, this, this miracle star in the, in the legal eagle world. Uh, at 29 being, you know, you know that's a big position. And you're exaggerating just a little bit as my friend, but that's fine. <laughs> I've got to bump you up, bump you up. <laughs> but this is something you have loved. I mean, you, you grew up, one, one of the other things I love about character, she's from Brooklyn. <laughs> that's right. <another> thing. <laughs> but, but this has been something you've loved, the whole legal field. You, you, I mean, talk about where does that passion come from? Here you are, this little girl growing up in an Orthodox Jewish family in Brooklyn and become this, this huge judge in Baltimore covering crime and grit and the rest and all the other philanthropic things you do. What, what drives you? What, what, what is that? Good question. Um, I'm, I've always wanted to be a lawyer since I was literally like able to speak. And I'm not quite sure why, because no one in my family were lawyers. I think I just grow, grew up at a time where there were a lot of very sexy law shows. Um, we had uh, L.A. Law, which was a great show. And there was even a show on PBS that probably a lot of people don't remember, which is called Paper Chase. Mm -hmm. And it was also about a show of, uh, you know, and I, I always 
loved the idea of the back and forth, you know, that Socratic method of learning and really trying to just elicit thoughts and thinking and really developing your mind and being challenged. Um, and I always like to talk, I always like to argue. So <laughs> it kind of was a natural fit. Uh, and, you know, I think that the way that I developed in that field really came from my upbringing. I mean, you know, in, in my religion, it's very important to give back. And, you know, we really strongly believe that to whom much is given, much is expected. Um, you know, we have, we have a strong concept of, and I th it's interesting, actually, I was watching John Lewis's, um, Congressman John Lewis's funeral yesterday, and I can't remember which speaker, it might have been President Obama, who he talked about it as well, how every single person is created in the image of God. Um, so that means every person has a bit of the divine in them. So that means that every person who comes in front of you, even if they're in chains, even if they're a drug addict, even if they have mental health, whatever issues, whatever it is, every single person has a piece of the divine in them. And that, so if you really truly innately believe that, then every single person deserves a level of respect because they all represent the divine. The divine. And and um, so therefore you need to make sure that every person who comes in front of you is treated as an individual with respect, with kindness, with understanding, um, while still doing your job. And I don't think that those two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can be a judge and still be compassionate and still be thoughtful and still be purposeful. Um, so, um, wait, think, hold on one second. My, the gardeners are here and my dog is doing <laughs> Okay. He just wanted to hear the interview. <laughs> he was just barking. Oh, I got new gardeners, so he's not familiar with them. So he was out there like, like he's this big, like he's gonna do something. <laughs> but he was, could you hear him barking? Not really, no. Okay, good, good. Okay, go sit down, Mike. So you're a watchdog, good. <laughs> you're still um, safe now, right? Yeah, what did you think about that? Those were some beautiful ceremonies. I mean, think of, think about how many times they they celebrated his life and what. Yeah. And actually, I just saw there's going to be a special on CBS. I think like a whole hour, two hour um, special about him. So I don't think you know enough about him. I mean, I think you know, even living through the Jim Crow South and and have being been certainly have benefited from him getting his skull cracked and doing all the things that amazingly he did. Um, we're all still learning about him. And I think this oh, is also I, a time when we're learning about ourselves. We're yeah, I just don't think that there's a lot of, um, I don't think in general, kids are taught in school a lot about that history. Um, and, it, you know, it, it really is a shame because it really is the founding of our country and, and how we got to where we are, et cetera. And it, it's interesting because I, I actually, uh, was thinking about that, but in a little bit of a different context, 
And the context was, is that unfortunately, um, through everything that's been going on with Black Lives Matters and the protests, unfortunately, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism that has um, really showed its ugly face again, um, as, it, as, it, as it always does uh, cyclically. And, um, you know, and it, it was sad to me to see it coming from the direction where it was coming from, because... I have always believed that Jewish people and African-Americans have a, a natural alliance. Mm -hmm. You know, the same people that hate you hate me. Okay. <laughs> so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And, and, and there's a very uh, just symbiotic natural alliance that has always been in our two communities. That, no question. I mean, look and, at, look, look at historically. Right. And that, but that was exactly my point. My mm -hmm. point is that, a lot of people don't know that history in the African-American community and in the Jewish community. They don't know how, you know, about the, um, the, the Jewish guys who were killed um, in Selma. I think actually um, also someone during the pointing to the TV, someone in their speech did mention Goodman and Cheney. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. So, and these um, were guys, these were Jewish guys who were down there trying to help black folks vote. Correct. I mean, this this was this was an amazing thing, I, you know. When you bring that up, the 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 and and you and I talk about this all the time. We have such a rich love for each other's cultures um, that I, I you know, sometimes I want to be honorary Jewish. <laughs> you know, it's like I love their culture so much that we learn so much from each other. But there is so much of that similarity. That's why I think it hurts so much to hear Nick Cannon when he um, well he lost his job for it but said some very derogatory things toward the Jewish community. Now, is that, and he, and like I said, he lost his job. There are many who say, well, yeah, there are a lot of white folks who say stuff about black folks. They lost their jobs. Right. Um, but I think beyond all of that, and, and then there's going to come the question of, are we a cancel culture or council culture? But it just hurts so much. I think just because of the historic, um, the ambience or you know togetherness that you've brought up yeah i mean you know obviously i was very disturbed by what nick said um and he doesn't have a history of that mm -hmm. so it was very very surprising um you know i personally believe in a certain level of counsel before cancel Okay, so I think that there are a lot of repeat offenders, and I think repeat offenders need to be treated differently than a first-time offender like uh, Nick Cannon was. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very happy to hear that a rabbi from the Simon Wiesenthal Center um, spoke to him and educated him, which is which is wonderful because that's really what it's about. We need to be educated. Both of us need to be educated before you speak. Before right? you speak. Before you speak. You really do need to be responsible before you speak because people do listen to you and right. you, you have an influence on people. People assume that you know what you're talking about. They take what you say much more seriously than any other Joe Schmo. So you really need to, um, to be responsible and educated before you speak. Right. And, and your friends, right, need to be responsible in their support of you before they support you. So well, that's true too. with Nick Cannon, you know, he has a lot of famous friends and rightfully so Nick's been around for a really long time. 
So, you know, and a lot of them just came out and automatically is like, we're, we're for Nick, right? And then they actually heard what he said. What he said. Like, and for those who whoa. don't know what he said, he basically said that, that people without melanin have no compassion and are basically savages, savages. unquote. Right. So, um, Specifically geared in, in, to, to Jews, to, to, white, Jews. to white Jews. Yeah. Um, and, um, but again, I, I, you know, I think he's taken the time to educate himself. Yeah. I think that he has, uh, he has apologized. Mm -hmm. And I think that people do deserve second chances to make up for, for a wrong. I don't think that. Well, that maybe he'll get his talk show back because they put that on hold too. I mean, people are not playing with this anymore. I think this is whole thing of enough already. We're seeing it even from the animation world and voiceovers with, with actors now, you know, after 20 years of playing white, black characters, the right. white actors are now, you know, it's just, it's just this changing, evolving thing. But, but, but one of the things I think the real, maybe not for us a wake up call, but a real realization moment is just how much of the race relations, you know, or the lack thereof is so systemic in this nation, particularly in the justice system. I mean, or, or let me ask you, is it? You know, you and I have these conversations all the time and you and I have a safe space to talk about these things, right? I could say anything to you and ask you any question and you will respond to me um, with, you know, with love and with an explanation and vice versa. I think part of what we're missing here in this country right now is a safe space. I think that people are, I think white people are scared to ask questions and try to get a better understanding from their black friends because, or black people they know, black coworkers, whatever it is, or black platforms, whatever it is, because there's a certain level of almost every question we ask, you know, we're so scared it's going to appear to be a racist question. The way you phrased the question was racist. Right. And um, if people are, are scared to ask questions and they don't feel safe, they don't feel like they have a safe space to ask questions, they're going to be walking around with that same ignorance or misunderstanding. Uh, and, and, and that's a real shame. I think that yeah. this is, now that people are really focused on this and we have an opportunity to have conversation and we're learning what questions to ask, Mm -hmm. um, which is, I think, is, a, is, is an important place to start in a conversation, is even learning what the issues are to address. Right. Um, I feel, I, I, I would hope that we can create more platforms where people could ask the questions without the finger pointing, without the, just the way you phrased that question is raised. Right. That's not, that's right. not the that knee-jerk reaction. Right. And you know, and listen, there's so much hostility held up and, and for the first time you get to talk about it. So sometimes that, but it, but it is, the, it's emotional management and this is the most emotional thing, but look at the root of that, the motion in there, we're getting somewhere with this and you're right. I mean, what, I'm just trying to think what, I mean, I try to hear at least on Rolanda on demand, try to open and I love what you said and I'm so happy you said it so well. Um, because I do say to my black friends, don't be so quick 
to, to point a finger. I mean, listen, let, don't educate, don't aggravate right. and let, or escalate. Let's just take a moment, take a breather. We're all in this learning curve together. Um, you know, people are trying to manage their businesses now. They, you know, I had a friend who called me and just said, help me. I had no idea. He said, I look at my business. There's nobody in here of color. I look at my board. It's Lily White. I, I, but I'm not a racist. I said, well, these are conversations we really need to have. I mean, right. um, so it's just, it's how can we facilitate? What else can we do? Town hall meetings, blogs? What can the average Joe Schmo do? I mean, I think, oh, I mean, I've seen some, some videos. I don't remember who it was. I think maybe D. Wade had on his Instagram this guy. And of course, I don't remember his name because I, I barely could remember what I had for breakfast. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, who taught, basically has like a, a, a YouTube channel or something about like all the things that white people really want to know but are afraid to ask. Oh, that's cool. You know? <laughs> um, you know or, and, and really like, you know, basic questions like, why, why BLM as opposed to all life matter, right? Why black lives matter as opposed to all lives matter? Mm. What, you know, what's the subtlety in that? What, you know, what, why don't, you know, cause white people really, a lot of white people really don't get that. Get that. And that's, you know, that really is something that needs to be explained because obviously all lives matter, but people have to understand that black lives matters is not saying that your life doesn't matter, right? Well, yeah, is um, if you you know you have a, a beautiful block of houses, right? But one of the houses are on fire, right? And you're like focused on getting the fire out of this house, and it doesn't mean that all the other beautiful houses on the block don't matter. They're just still as beautiful, and and the police need to keep an eye on it. The fire department, everyone still needs to you know to care about these houses. But right now, that this house is the one on fire. So that's the one we need to f focus on. You know, that's that's the house. That uh, 6201, or right, whatever the house number is, that's the house that everybody's focused on. <laughs> that's okay. right. That, you that's know, the one in trouble. It don't matter. But right now, 6201 is the issue, you know? Sister um, Karen, I'm going to use that example from now on. I think I could handle that one a little bit better. <laughs> Okay, you're welcome. No, no need to even quote me. Right. Oh my God. But you know something? I will say this, that I have had some really good conversations about race and even class. And, you know, you know, I, it gives me a chance to talk about my book, which, which is now some, you know, I, I think that people are starting to use their art more to talk about you know, whatever it is we're going through as a nation. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think the class conversation is really huge. Yeah. I, I really, really do. Um, you know, because to, to me, that's a lot of it, especially from where I'm sitting and what I, I see. Yeah, talk uh, from I, your point of view, from the big. Well, I, I don't, you know, listen, I'm not saying, I know that there are <gasps> African-Americans that get pulled over by the police and all that. I'm not seeing those people. Okay, so I don't know if that's just Baltimore, because Baltimore is a less affluent city, um, but most of the people that I see in front of me every day, a lot of them are there not as much for race issues as much as class issues. And what does that mean? That means that they are there because they have a problem that wasn't addressed because of a lower class standing and poverty. 
basically. So, you know, I, I, listen, again, I'm not saying there aren't rich people who are drug addicts, okay? But they're not really being arrested, right? If you're in your beautiful home in, you know, the Hollywood Hills, you know, doing your drugs and you get wrong out, exactly. The police are generally not coming to your house, right? Right. But if you're living in a poverty-stricken hood neighborhood, right, you are. You are you are getting arrested for using drugs, having drugs, selling drugs, um, homelessness, um, mental health issues, right? They're again not that there aren't rich people who have mental health issues, but a lot of those people are getting help, right? Well, it's, it's like what, I mean, I hate to be so Hollywood, but it is really a lot what we saw on The Wire. Uh, the, Baltimore, yes. Baltimore, yeah. I thought you were going to bring up Kanye, but yes, it is, it is. Um, oh, that's it, a whole nother topic. <laughs> that's a whole, that's a whole nother show. A whole nother show. <laughs> and my heart, honestly, my heart goes out to Kim. It's, it's and, a, and you know something, and mental uh, health, let's be real about that. Too. And, and I, I, I got to give love and compassion and support out oh, to Kim and I mean, the family. I see, I see people like that all the time, families that come in front of me and they're just besides themselves, desperate, desperate, desperate to do something to help their loved one. And the law is really not helpful. It mm -hmm. just, you know, the law really limits what a judge can do for a family like that. And because um, and we haven't dealt so. with it, because it's a stigma, or it no, just hadn't I, been dealt I with. I think that there are, um, you know, I, I don't think that we've really thought out mental health issues very well in this country in general. Right. I don't think that legislators or Congress or anyone has really dealt with it. Um, you know, we thankfully in this country have very strict due process issues. And once someone's 18, they are afforded a certain level of due process. So just to lock someone up for mental health and put them in a the hospital comes with a lot of due process issues. Right. And I just think that they haven't really been, it hasn't been dealt with. They haven't put together, you know, yet the necessity of the situation and the severity and the emergency nature of the situation, um, along with the due process issues, they just really haven't figured out a great way to solve that. Right. Um, but again, that, I don't think that much energy has been put into it, but it, it's, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed. Right. But I, I definitely, you know, again, you know, if, if Kanye decided not to take his medication, he at least has medication, right? He at least right. has doctors who have been working with him. When you have a situation where someone's really poor or living in a poor neighborhood where they don't really have access to healthcare professionals like that, they're not getting physicals, let alone um, mental health uh, therapy, right? Um, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult situation and it's gonna end up in the criminal justice system somewhere because Unfortunately, today, what has happened is, is that the criminal justice system has become the repository for all the ills in society that are not being dealt with anywhere else. You know, you're a drug addict, you get arrested for drugs. You're homeless, you're getting arrested for disturbing the peace or uh, uh, a vagabond. Um, you have mental health, so you, you know, you assault someone, so now you're in the system for assault. Uh, you know, you're an alcoholic, so you hit your wife, now you're in the domestic violence arena. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you know, all these issues are getting addressed by, uh, the, the system. And, and, and that's not what the system was set up for. And honestly, that's not what our specialty is as judges. But, you know, my feeling has always been that, um, no one else is dealing with it. So somebody needs to step up and say, I, it needs to be dealt with. 
So if no one else is doing it and you're standing in front of me, how dare I just not care and, and just keep it moving when all that's going to end up happening is he's just going to end up right back in the system. And it's like this vicious. But Karen, Karen, tell, tell our audience how many cases you deal with a day. This is like, this is no joke. I mean, what Karen does day to day is amazing. How many cases, I mean, criminal cases do you deal with a day? I, I pretty much only deal with criminal cases. Um, my court does everything. We do civil, we do family, we do juvenile. My heart is in civil, uh, in the criminal, so I, I try to stay in criminal as much as I can. Um, so on the last docket I was doing, I was probably seeing uh, on an average day, 40 to 50 cases by lunch. By lunch? By lunch. Yeah, by lunch. How do you, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not taken away from your professionalism or expertise, but how do you get a handle on each case? Um, uh, I, I'm a pretty quick thinker. Yeah, and you know your stuff. <laughs> right, and I've been doing this a really, really long right. time. And it's not, you know, after you see years. a few murderers, it's pretty much this, you know. Okay, so on, on those 40, 50 cases, I'm not seeing murderers. You're not murder. Okay. So we're not dealing with murderers. So murderers and rapists, um, are, that's a whole different, that's a whole different courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, the, the docket I prefer to stay on is the docket about dealing with the people that we're talking about. Okay, once you're already accused of murder, Right. There's not a, a lot. Uh, there's not a lot I could do at this point, right? But I you're, like you're, how you're helping. By. Right. I like how you're helping us see the difference there, because I had lumped all criminals in one pot. But what you're saying is, it's those people who didn't have the anger management or didn't have the mental health or the drug rehabilitation, and you believe that's where your counsel over. Well, again, I'm not. I'm not saying that the people who have been arrested for murder or convicted for mur of murder don't have those issues sure because sure. i don't i personally do not believe that people are innately evil okay yeah, i agree there may be a couple of psychopaths i'm not saying not right we have we've had a couple of serial killers and yeah. you know there, there are some some people who are, are psychopaths okay mm -hmm. yes most people are not innately evil people mm -hmm. there are people who have been in crazy tough situations that that unfortunately th that's the environment in which they developed. So they end up the way that they end up. Okay. I mean, ju just think about it for a second, right? Let's say, God forbid, I'll take one, you know, my, my kid, um, God forbid my kid was 10 years old. He was outside playing with his friend. He's on his little bike and his friend's on his little bike. All of a sudden someone drives by, shoots his best friend, kid dies right there in front of my child. Right. Mm -hmm. What would I do, right? Me, Karen Friedman, I would immediately, obviously take my kids to the emergency room, get him checked out. Then I would have him meet with a psychiatrist. Then probably for the next two years, I would have him in therapy every single day. Every day. I would call the school and tell the school, you know, let him be, let him do what he needs to do. Let's give him an individual education plan. He's not, you know, if, he, if there's a day he can't come to school because I'm going to keep him home, da-da-da-da-da-da, right? It would literally, getting him well from that experience would literally become the central focus of my life. Entirely. There are kids in neighborhoods in this city that experience that every day and get nothing. 
they, okay, time to come in for supper, time to go to school, no mental health services. And they are walking around with that kind of trauma and that kind of PTSD for the rest of their lives. So then when that 10-year-old becomes 18 mm-hmm. and is now you know, caught with a handgun, is anyone really surprised? Why are we surprised? Look what he experienced. Don't you think he's the one to protect himself, yeah. feel unsafe? That's right. What, you know, why are we, you know, and then once you have a gun, generally when there's a gun, there's, there's something's going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I tell most of the guys who I see between 18 and 21, 22 that are caught with a gun, there's only two ways this story ends up. Mm-hmm. This story either ends with you dead or you in jail. Those are the options when That's you're it. already carrying around a gun, right? In, in those, in, in those you know, dangerous neighborhoods, okay? So it's, it's, it's not shocking, right? It's not shocking. But when you're, so when you're talking about the kids, the guys, the men who are, who are accused of murder, et cetera, et cetera, or the really serious crimes, it's not that they don't have those issues, okay, that has led them. It's that it's a little bit too late, right? Once you're accused of murder, it's you're facing life in jail. There's really not that much I can do for you at that point. You have broken, um, even if it's not your fault, you have broken the code of society. Society, right? Absolutely. You have broken, you know, the ten Noahide laws. Okay. Right. Even I know that commandment. <laughs> So there's really very, there's really at that point, unfortunately, there's not very much I can do. You're right. But But you do, but but you are known for your programs and you are known for them being effective. I mean, you know, it's, um, I have to tell folks this, that that we call Karen adoringly the high heel judge because the woman loves shoes and loves jewelry and she can wear that black robe all day, but even the people she's putting behind bars are like, you know, you wear some jewelry. You, you remember you telling me stories about that. But you have a good rapport, even in the dire situations of somebody's existence. Um, you want the best for them. You want them to win. And you have been awarded and, and granted opportunities to speak at Harvard, uh, all because, a lot because of what you bring to the table. And, and also with domestic violence, your interfaith uh, domestic violence is it a coalition that you have of interfaith? Talk to me about what, you know, just, I was listening today about them talking about kids going back to school. And I want to get your opinion on that too. But they were talking about kids going back to school. And a lot of the, the concern was how much domestic violence was going on. And these kids were in these abusive homes, nobody tracking, you know, schools can tell, or your, 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 your place of worship can tell, or your, or your doctor can tell. We're not even seeing pediatricians now. So that, that, when I saw that Interfaith Domestic Violence Coalition, I was like, you guys have got to be busy now. What, does, what, what is going on? I know crime is up. Um, and, so so yeah. the coalition really came about um, because, you know, I really, I was, when I was in the lower court where, where most of the, like, the protective orders were taking place, um, I mean, I would, you know, hear these protective order cases day after day after day. Excuse me. And it was very frustrating to me. And I really wanted to try to do something. 
So I put together the coalition and I decided to do it on an interfaith basis because at the end of the day, for many victims of domestic violence, their clergy person, whatever religion it is, but their clergy person, a lot of times is the first person that they reveal their situation to. And because of the nature of that relationship between clergy person and, and, and congregant, um, a lot of times that clergy person's initial reaction to what they are hearing will be very, very important in, in this person deciding what steps they want to take next. Right. right? So, and we know that most religions, if not all religions, believe in the sanctity of the family, okay? And they have a goal of keeping families together, which I understand that's always should, should be the ultimate goal unless there is violence in that home. Right. If, there, if, if that home is unsafe and there is violence, then there, there needs to be an understanding of the problem. So if a clergy person just tells that woman, go home, make him a nice dinner, exactly. put on something pretty and it'll be fine, then that clergy person really doesn't understand the dynamic of domestic violence. Right. Because domestic violence is about power and control. It has nothing to do with how good dinner was, how good a wife you are, how well behaved the kids are, you know, about gaining weight. It's not about any of that. It is about power and control. And, um, and most, most abusers are going to be abusive no matter what relationship. They can be married to a supermodel who cooks dinner every night. If you have that need for that power and control, you will be abusive in your next relationship as well. So, um, so to, my goal was to educate clergy person to say, hey, this is how you recognize domestic violence. This is what it is. This is what you should, more importantly than do, this is what you shouldn't do. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, my goal was to teach them no evil, right? Do no harm. And then refer out. Because th you are not a trained professional for domestic violence. I am not a trained professional for domestic violence. But there are people in every community that are. So do no harm and refer. And refer. Refer to people who can actually affirmatively help. I want you not to hurt and then find someone who could affirmatively help. Right. And my goal is also to, um, to teach them a little bit about uh, what they can do. So for example, safety planning, right? Mm -hmm. Every woman who's in an abusive situation, even if she's not ready to leave, should plan, have an escape plan. Mm -hmm. Should have a plan of, I'm not ready to leave right now, but if A, B, if he, you know, if he crosses this line, I'm out. And a plan of how to do that, whether it's already a plan of which house, who's, which friend she's going to go to, um, keeping a burner phone somewhere hidden in the house. So if he takes away her phone or breaks her phone or disconnects the house phone, if people still even have house phones, um, and um, she has a, an extra phone that she could call 911 with. 
Um, whether it's a little suitcase with all her basic essentials. So if she only has, you know, if he leaves to the shed for a minute and she only has two minutes to leave, she has a little bag already that she could run with. So she doesn't have to start searching for her toothbrush and pat. She has everything set in one little bag hidden. Make an escape. Basic safety planning. That I would love them to learn as well. So, so that was really the goal of the program and uh, of the coalition. And um, we've had uh, conferences, many conferences, where we invite, uh, you know, uh, clergy people from all over the state, whether it's, you know, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, we've had Catholic, you know, priests with collars, we've had, you know, imams, we've had rabbis, we've had reverends, and, you know, men, women, old, young, wh whatever it is, as many people as we can, we can get into that room to just educate them about, again, what, what it looks like. And because um, it is wonderful. a very, yeah, it's very, it's a very different thing than just, you know, having a fight with your spouse. It's, it's, know. you know, it's so, yes, yeah, so that was the goal. Talks about where, where are we going? But before we go um, to, to just the general idea of what's going to happen in November fr from you, um, how is COVID affecting the prisons? I mean, what are you guys having to deal with? Is, is it affecting the way that you rule? Is it, if there have been changes? So the court, at least in Maryland, every state's different. The court was closed uh, from about mid-March to beginning of June. When we opened beginning of June, it was just for remote hearings. No one was allowed into the courthouses besides for the judges and the staff. Mm -hmm. um, be about two weeks ago or so, we opened to the public. But we, we're just doing hearings and remote, remote hearings. So we, we are, you know, we're, DOC, the Department of Corrections, is not transporting um, people who are in jail yet into the courthouse uh, for safety reasons, mm -hmm. for COVID safety reasons. Um, I mean, are well, people going to get off because they're going to say, well, it's COVID, people, I can't go. No, people are not getting off, but they are getting out. Um, so uh, basically, you know, the court has reviewed almost every case at this point of people that are being held in detention centers pre-trial mm -hmm. and have gone through each of them to make a determination if they can be released pre-trial. Um, whether on a home monitoring bracelet, uh, on home detention, or just even just on a bail or on a recog, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, the determination that, it, that that's analyzed through is, A, is that person a risk to public safety? Mm -hmm. Two, is that person um, a flight risk? And at this point, those are normally the two general factors for bail reviews. The third now is also, are they particularly vulnerable to COVID? So, you know, uh, you know, the judges have been taking into consideration age. They've been taking into consideration pre, you know, pre-existing conditions. I mean, I had a young man in front of me who had sickle cell. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, sickle cell is, I mean, if he got COVID, he would most likely die. I mean, it's, right. you know, it's a very serious underlying condition. There are a lot of people in jail with HIV, which, you know, compromises their immune system. There are people in jail with severe asthma. So those are things that we definitely consider. Now, again, we're still, you know, if someone is a danger to the community and, you know, is, is accused of murdering several people, et cetera, et cetera, most likely he did not get out. I, I don't think very many guys accused of murder have gotten out. Yeah. But there have been men who have gotten out um, that were being held, but under the circumstances, 
they were they were released. No, um, I mean, the, the true problem really is, is the jury situation is we can't have jury trials. Uh, you know, the, the court is telling us that we're going to start in October. You know, um, <laughs> you know, if you got a jury notice now, would you go? I, you know, I, I, you know, of course I would go, but yeah, well, I want to serve my community. I would, right. you know, but, but, but I, but, you know, I don't yeah. know if we're going to get the number of jurors that we need to get. I don't know how we're going to um, deal with jury boxes, jury rooms. Right. You know, the jurors are usually in very uh, small areas. They sit in next to each other. Jury rooms. Yeah. I mean, so um, I'm very concerned about that. And we have, you know, we have men who have been sitting you know, who thought they were going to have trials in March, April, May, June, July, August, September, and oh now we're in, and now we're in October, and we're not even sure we're we're, we're going to able to swing it. So um, that is really the you know one That's of the horrible. great tragedies of this all um, is that people have a right to a trial and they have a right to, to a, a speedy trial. trial. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, yeah. um, they're not going to get it because of this terrible pandemic. I've been wondering just uh, off the side, are these masks helping with crime? I mean, <laughs> you can't, you can't identify people. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, you know, I don't arrest people. So I, I don't know. And listen, um, you I, know, the joke was when this first came out, how's a black man going to walk into a store with a mask? You know, <laughs> I'm not going to laugh at that one. That's I know, I know. I'll keep you politically correct. <laughs> but, um, you know, you can make that joke. I cannot. I know. I know. We got that. <laughs> but, I'm a comedian uh, in the group. That's my there, way. There you go. There you go. Um, but, um, you know, I think that, you know, people tell me crime is down. That's actually completely false. Um, I think we need to dis distinguish between crime being down and arrests being down. Those are really two different things, right? <laughs> Just because people are not being arrested doesn't mean that the crime is down. Because if you look at the crimes that the police are focusing on, which are just the major crimes, those are way up. So we are way up in our murder rate between this year and last year, okay? So the murder, the murder, you know, those kind of crimes, the police are still actively investigating, et cetera. And those numbers are, are very high. Yes, our, our, you know, arrests for possession and disturbing the peace and all that, those are down because the police are not bothering with those crimes and it's not worth it to risk their lives COVID wise to go into someone's house, not knowing what's going, you know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But the major crimes that they are focused on were at the level, if not higher. So I, I don't, I don't really buy the argument that crime is down. I just think arrests are down. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and as you said, yes, domestic violence is way up. Uh, I know in, in Baltimore, at least, in the lower court that handles um, protective orders in the city, just in the city, forgetting about surrounding areas, just in the city, we have six judges in six different courtrooms who are only doing protective orders all day, every day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How do you have a protective order in the middle of COVID? Somebody's got to be out in the street. Well, that's, that's a big problem. <laughs> oh, that's another problem. Y'all, it just keeps. Yeah. 
It keeps, and, so and see, I, we don't see this side. That's why I wanted you to come on, Judge Karen, because we don't have any clue about this side of our society. I always say there are two, there are two societies in America, inside and outside. And, and just, uh, oh gosh, I, I just can't even imagine. I, um, I applaud you on the work that you do. I really do. I, I got a chance to, to be a, on the board of advisors for Rawway State Prison's Lifers Group back in the day. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, and I just learned at that time that, that there aren't always bad people. They're just people who make bad decisions. Karen, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you, as oh, always. It's just been yeah. so enlightening. And, you know, and I love the conversation because you give enough insight to, to give us enough to think about so we don't automatically make the judgments that a lot of us do. Um, and, and I love the, the things that you bring up about having an open conversation about race. And it's going to be difficult for both sides, the knee-jerk reactionists and the people who are just really curious and want to know. But, you know, yeah, it's a tough conversation. But We really have got to educate. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope that we could build bridges between our communities. That's really important to me. You know, I saw um, there was a, I mean, I'm not going to say names because I'm not a sports person, so I can't even remember names. But uh, there was a football player who had did some uh, pretty anti-Semitic tweets. And another, a Jewish football player, they do exist. I know. I was, I was about to say. Uh, I, I, I know we don't raise our boys to be football players, but. Uh, That's okay. Uh, There's jumbo uh, shrimp, too. There you go. Apparently, apparently there are some Jewish football players. That was interesting enough for me to learn. Um, and, um, you know, who basically reached out to him and said, hey, you know, I would love to discuss this with you. You know, why don't. I come with you to the African-American Museum and you come with me to the Holocaust Museum. Wonderful. And I thought Wonderful. that that was such a great way to address it. Because um, it's it's really, it's about learning and education and understanding. And, you know, I, I mean, I just, I, there's this misconception that like all Jewish people are rich. And I, I could tell you firsthand that there are a lot, a lot of poor, poor Jewish people. I mean, you know, we have organizations here in Baltimore, Jewish organizations that every Thursday night package food that they leave on the doors of poor people to have food for the weekend um, and for the Sabbath. You know, um, I would say in the Jewish day schools, over half of the people can't afford to pay tuition and are on tuition reduction. You know, this concept of that all, it, it, all people aren't, Jewish people are not rich. Are there a lot of Jewish people that are rich? There are Jewish people that are rich. Well, there are a lot of white people that are rich. There are a lot of Asian people that are rich, right? Um, you know, and we got a few uh, black folks who are rich. I get, yes, <laughs> a, a thousand percent. A like thousand. maybe five. <laughs> yeah, no, you're more than five. Okay, my next door neighbor. Oh, right, Jay Z. <laughs> that's not even I'm rich. That's, that's level. That's that's super rich. That's that, a billion. Right. That's you know, right. and, and yeah, you have a couple of Wall Street guys. What's his name? Robert Johnson oh, and. Yeah. This oh, other right. guy who I was just reading about, you know. But I, um, but I like that the, 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 you're bringing up, don't make the assumption because, you know, it's like what I love so much about the Holocaust Museum or the Tolerance Museum here in LA is when you walk in the door and they've got the, you know, the place where the curator comes and tells you what you're about to see. And then there are these two big doors and one says prejudice and the other says not prejudice. And she says, choose your door. And the one that says not prejudice, you can't even open that door is locked. 
So it's oh, assuming cool. from the beginning that we it all have a prejudice. With prejudice. Yeah, I love the story about the football players. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah, you should Google it. It's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah we should keep this conversation going. Maybe we do a judge and journalist. No, and you know where to find me, girl. I know where to find you. <laughs> there's, the, there's the, also, it's actually on the Holocaust Memorial that we have here in Baltimore, where it's like, you know, they came for the, you know, they came for the gays and I wasn't gay, so I kept quiet. You know, they came for the tradesmen, um, you know, but I wasn't a tradesman, so I kept quiet. They came for the, uh, I can't remember all the different things. They came for the Marxists and I wasn't the Marxist. And the whole list, he goes, and then they came for me and there was no one left to help me, you know? Oh, and and that's, uh, and, but, and, and that's really what it is, is that's that, truth. you know, minorities, whatever, whatever it is, you know, our, our Jews may have white skin, but we're not whites. We are not, we are not Caucasian, okay? We might look Caucasian, um, but in essence, we are a minority. And minorities need to stick together and support each other. Because if they take away your rights, my rights are next. If they take away my rights, your rights are next. That's right. That's and, right. you know, we need to, and I think our communities can learn a lot from each other. And, um, you know, I just, you know me, I, in my own way, I have built many, many bridges. <laughs> Karen, you are a universal human being. <laughs> all of humanity I tell you <laughs> you can see Karen anywhere Karen will hang out with LL Cool J I, I turned on Instagram the other day there she is with Fat Joe I mean this is a woman who who just really goes the whole spectrum but you always keep that humanitarianism in your heart and that's why so many of us love you all of us love you and I just I want us to keep this dialogue going because you are so on it and um, and you know what you're talking about and you're not afraid of anything. And I just want to keep this dialogue going. It's good stuff, Karen. Thank you so much, Judge Karen Friedman. Where Thank can we follow you? you? How can we support you? What can we do? Oh, you know, vote. Yes! <laughs> oh, what's going to happen this November? Oh my God, what are you thinking? Oh, please vote. Please vote. I vote. Vote and pray for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> Wait for her, everyone, every night, whatever your religion is, if you get down on your knees, if you do whatever you do, just keep RBG in your prayers. Yes, I know. Boy, she must be a huge influence on you. Oh my gosh, she needs to live. Oh, that woman just needs to just hold on just a little bit. Oh, she God. has put up a good fight. That woman she is. She is. She out. And, and she is like an itty bitty thing. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen her in yeah. person. She literally looks like if you would sneeze too hard, you would push her over. Teeny, weeny, teeny, 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 teeny. Like, she's probably my height sitting down, okay? And she is, yeah, we need to pray for her health. Yeah, she's been a dynamo. Well, you know something, one day, many, 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 many moons from now, you'll be that great lady on the bench. <laughs> that little old lady. <laughs> Don't you dream of doing, like, going, like, big Supreme Court stuff? Of course, that would be super cool. You know what I mean? I, I mean, if I'm gonna say no. I mean, you know, if someone asks me, I'm not. In gonna... your business, it's like getting your own talk show. <laughs> I mean, you know, 
I mean, I, listen, I, I, it's, it's a very difficult, for someone like me who is out and, and doing and going, and it, uh, it is a very restrictive position. So it would definitely change my life in a lot, a lot, a lot of ways. Um, you know, and also like, basically when you're doing what I'm doing, you're the king of your castle, meaning I don't have to ask anyone, the rulings are my rulings. I don't have, you know, eight other people that I have to consult with and, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and you know, so I, I think that would be an interesting dynamic as well, you know, cause I could, you know, my opinion could just be, all right, and I'm the dissent and everybody else, you know, agrees. And, um, you know, so there are a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of, you know, a lot of things that would be great about it. A lot of things I think that would make it very difficult. I, I, I don't think it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but you know well, you never know you never know <laughs> anything else that you want to say or promote or no i just you know like i said i hope everybody votes and knows that this election is really really important and i want to encourage people to also vote on the local level okay obviously voting for president is is, is very important but i don't think that people realize how important voting in their local elections are because on a day-to-day -day basis those are really the people that are affecting your lives way more than the president is um i mean i think that what also people don't realize is is that the the presidency it, it's almost its most powerful thing is their appointment of judges because a president is there for four years maybe eight years if a president is appointing a federal judge who's 52, okay, that judge will be there most likely for the next 30 to 40 That's years. Right. They have no retirement age. So when that president is long gone and the next president has already reversed every single thing that that former president did, the one thing that new president can't do is reverse the appointments of the judiciary. Once they're in, they are in. And people don't realize how much of their day-to-day -day is affected by judges' rulings on, in the, on that federal level. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, so really, you know, that, I just think that people don't get how important it is to have a president that will appoint judges that, are, that fall into your mindset. Um, and, I love um, that because I and I and I being totally transparent, I need to learn more about politics. I've always been, yeah, yeah, but it's this is the most important year ever. And you're right. I, I love that takeaway. Learn who your politicians are on the local level. And don't forget, I see why you're saying, please, Ms. Ginsburg, hang in there. Um, but yeah, our judicial um lineup is very important too and 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 knowing what the issues are i mean we're, we're all having to think and really face some just can't put your head in the sand anymore we're we're face it's in our face every day every day every day, day. Every every day. day. but yeah. we can make a huge difference in november and i don't know about you but i plan to make that difference <laughs> i'm gonna do whatever i can well unfortunately you and i both live in states that make absolutely no difference but <laughs> In Ohio, in Florida, Michigan. go vote. Pennsylvania, vote. Michigan, Michigan, go vote. <laughs> I tell you, Judge Karen Friedman, thank you so love much, you. my sister. I love awesome. you so much, and thank you for, for gracing us here on Rolanda On Demand. Thanks, love honey. Let me remind you that if you're looking for a really good, juicy romance novel, 
I want you to choose mine this summer. Rolanda Watts wrote Destiny Lingers. It's endorsed by Dr. Maya Angelou, and it's a good, juicy read. It's an interracial love story about two kids who couldn't be together because of segregation, but time moves on and destiny lingers, and they get a second chance at their first love. What would you do for a second chance at your first love? Well, see how a cop and a journalist make it all happen. Good talk about race and class. Uh, in this book, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. So pick one up today. Now go out there or stay at home, wear a mask, and do something good. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.